Hello and welcome to Reflections from Eternal Weekend 2018. And it brings me great pleasure to introduce our guest, Brian Koval. Hi, happy to be here. Brian Koval, uh, four SCG Legacy Classic Top 8s with two wins. Winner of the SCG Invitational, making this very fine monk token, I might add, that I just happen to own, which is pretty awesome. Remember when I first saw this, uh, I love that you're the ancestral guy and you're wearing a mock sapphire and it's just perfect for a monk with prowess. As of, uh, what are we, just a week ago? As of a week ago, 2018 Vintage World Champion. North American Champion, technically, but True. I'll take it. You're still a champ and no one can take that away from you. Absolutely not. So uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so my name's Brian Koval, like you said. Uh, my... My day job, I'm a behavior analyst. I support kids with profound intellectual and physical disabilities. Uh, we get them when the school district can't handle them. I work with people who m the general population don't even know they exist. That's, that's my whole life, and I love it. Tell us a little bit about your, your history, how you've come along, how long you've been playing for. Just let us know who you are when it comes to magic. In summer camp, the year between third and fourth grade, one of the counselors, uh, we, get, we got to pick electives every session, and one of the counselors was running a an elective called Magic the Card Game. And I was like, eh, what's that? I don't know. That, that sounds okay. Like, I've done archery every week so far. Like, let me try something else. It was kind of disorganized. Like, there it was just a bunch of screaming 10-year-olds and this one guy trying to teach one of the most complicated games ever. We left with a stack of cards and we were aware the game exists. Like, he just handed us, like, each a brick of cards, like, commons and uncommons from, like, Unlimited through Ice Age or whatever was available at the time. And then my mom bought me a, a portal starter pack. And in fourth grade, when I got back to school, I learned a couple of my school friends already were aware of this game and had some cards and we played with a lot of made up rules for a while and then uh, when a uh, tempest was released that's when i really started getting involved learning the real rules uh opening packs regularly I, I knew where the local game shops were like that was a tipping point into like yeah this is a thing i actually do it's not just these silly cards i own i was purely casual all the way through high school, uh, we played multiplayer casual 60s at the lunch table. Uh, I always had my subscriptions to Scry and Inquest magazines, so I knew there was a pro tour. I could read the deck list, but I didn't really understand the difference between like the pros tinkering for th things at the pro <laughs> tour versus like me playing. Uh, like my my friend, we could never beat Bearscape. Like that's an enchantment that just like for five mana makes a bear and they can do it as many times as they want. Like I can never beat that. So I, I was in a very different world than the competitive scene. I played in one tournament during this era. It was a masks and invasion block standard. And I quickly learned that my hundred card, five color Cavu deck was not competitive. And then I just didn't go back to a tournament for a very long time. At the end of high school, so around 2006, I got Magic Online, and that made drafting accessible. Uh, I fell in love with drafting. Uh, time Spiral Block was the block at the time, uh, just like Triple Time Spiral Draft. It was a great format. I loved it. It led me to seek out a store uh, that ran drafts a few times a week. I was just a religious attendee at the store drafts for years after that. In like 2007, 2008, I tried grind grinding PTQs, but... I just wasn't very good at magic really back then. Um, I was in that constant trap that a lot of 
new grinders were where they read this week's article and build the deck from this week's article, not realizing that everyone who's actually going to win the tournament is building a deck to beat this week's article. So I was in this constant grind of, uh, and I was a college kid without a lot of money. So I was in constant grind of spend all my money, build last week's deck, then this week lose, and then sell that deck at a 50% loss or whatever to get the new deck, which is now a week too late. Just the con the standard grind, like people who play standard know what I'm talking about and people who don't play standard made a good choice. So, (laughs) and and that's why I got into eternal in like 2008 or 2009. I was just like really sick of constantly like the pump and dump of like, get a new deck, lose a bunch of money, get a new deck, lose a bunch of money. And I just decided like, I'm a legacy player now. I'm an eternal player now. I had never played a match of legacy. I didn't know anything. I just real, just something in me said like, this is a smarter place to be. It's a better investment. Extended was the PTQ season we were coming off of the old eight year extended, like storm and dredge were both in that. My first major competitive event I played in grand prix, Philadelphia in 2008. And I played dredge this extended dredge and that whole format was busted. That was the format that really broke Dredge because Future Sight had just come out. Like Dredge, like we just got a uh, the Dread Return Narc Amoeba package, and it, it real and Bridge from Below was also in Future Sight. Like that just changed Dredge forever, made it the monster that it still is today in Vintage. And I played Dredge in that Grand Prix. Everyone was ready for it. I didn't win, but I got a taste of what Broken Eternal Magic is like, and it was great. Then uh, I I quickly pivoted that extended collection, which contained all the Onslaught fetch lands and like Counterbalance and Sensei's Top. Like all of those cards were in the format. So I just had to pick up Dual Lands, Force of Wills, Daze's Wastelands, just like the the slightly older stuff. But it was still pretty early in Magic's overall history. And that was, I think there are more years since then. No, no, we're not quite more years since then, since before then, but... Uh, that's pretty close to the midpoint of Magic's history. And dual lands were still like expensive at the time, but nothing compared to what we're talking about now. Like, my, uh. yeah, my first set of underground seas cost $150 total. And I remember during this era arguing with a store owner because they wanted $35 for this beautiful, gradable cherry mint tropical island. And I was like, don't you have a beat up one at a reasonable price in the back? Like, this is ridiculous. That that was the era that I bought into Eternal. And it has proven to be a very good choice. Yeah, definitely. Especially with dual end prices. And I went through something similar. I remember I bought like a lot of duels for like $280. And I was like, oh, I'm spending so much. But it's I, I really want these. I see my friends play with them, but I, of course, bought the wrong ones. And I have tundras and tropicals and not undergrounds and volcanics. But what are you right. going to do? <laughs> and back then, uh, this era was when Ely Cassis was running 40 duels events at his store in New York, Jupiter Games for like once a month. It was just like 40 duels like that was like a one or two K event back then. Now it's like a 15 K event to run that. We were just me and my college group. We just all got into legacy and we were just grinding the Vestal tournaments. There's a, another place, uh mythic games in Elmira, New York. And we were going to the star city opens and 
Like, it was just like totally normal, like 40 duels on a weekend. Let's go try to get some of them. So you mentioned uh, SCG and looking at your history, you've actually had a lot of success with SCG, including winning the Invitational, which is a pretty big thing. When did you really start gearing up through SCG and not as much like Grand Prix and stuff? Or do you, or what's your best finish at a Grand Prix? Um, what I looked up online didn't show anything. So that's mostly accurate. Uh, okay. The My best finishes at Grand Prix, my first Grand Prix money was Legacy Grand Prix Providence. I think it was 2011, maybe 2010. Uh, that was the Grand Prix where mental misstep was legal. The oh, no. one Grand Prix that you could do that. I was really into legacy elves at the time and oh, no. to make my elf deck unsusceptible to mental misstep, I turned it into a food chain deck. Uh, you can actually, there is an article somewhere in the archive of star city uh, where I wrote about my experiences playing that deck. It was sweet. I don't know if you've ever evoked a mall drifter into a food chain before, but that's black Lotus plus divination on the same card. It's very sweet. Uh, there, there's an article out there somewhere. And then just a few years ago, I played a team limited Grand Prix with Chris Stagno and Alex Bestecki, and we lost playing for the X2 Pro Tour invite in the last round. Uh, we were not live for top four anymore. We would have been fifth or sixth, but it's a clean X2 cut. Everyone at X2 goes to the Pro Tour. So we lost our winning into the Pro Tour. Uh, those are my two most successful Grand Prix. Uh, the, the Star City circuit, I was actually a judge for a very long time, uh, like from like 2010 to like 2015, I was, if I was traveling to a competitive event, I was judging it, not playing it. Uh, Star City though, they, they worked out a sweet deal with me where back when, before the two day opens, it used to be standard open on Saturday, legacy open on Sunday every week. And I would judge standard play legacy. So I got to continue cutting my teeth on legacy in a time where I was otherwise not playing magic. And then I stopped judging in 2015 uh, for a variety of reasons. Mostly I was a, an adult with a well-paying job. I was out of college. Like I didn't want to work on my weekend anymore. Then I just started playing more. And uh, I had also moved to Pittsburgh after college. And I, I joined their uh, team draft, Tuesday night team draft tr tradition at Carnegie Mellon University. That's the same infamous uh, team draft tradition founded by like Aaron Forsyth, Mike Turian, Randy Bueller, like most of R&D now. These guys founded that that weekly team draft back in the 90s, and people still do it now. So I was just like playing Magic every week with like Rich Shea and Andrew Cuneo and Steve Rubin and just like people who are a lot better at Magic than me. And I was getting a lot better because I was around them and learning from them. Uh, around 2015, I just pivoted into I'm now playing tournaments. And then, wow, now I'm winning tournaments. Like, this is pretty great. Just in the last two years, I think two and a half years, like two or three summers ago, when Eldrazi was just fully powered in modern, I made it to the finals of a modern open, or not open, a modern classic. I conceded the finals to a person playing just Jund, like regular old Jund against fully powered Eldrazi, because we worked out a prize split where uh, he got first place and I got a huge extra boost of store credit, which mm -hmm. was more important to me at the time. Though, uh, now that I have a few other trophies, that that will always be the one that got away. Just There's just a blank spot on my wall where I wish that modern plaque was. I'll get another one someday. Yeah, so I, I made the finals of that one, and that just like really broke through for me. Like, I can do this. Like, there's nothing, nothing taboo, like nothing sacred, like nothing special about a top eight. I, I, I can totally do this. And then a few months later, I... 
won a legacy open with Grixis Delver. And then over the next year and a half, I just, I think my classic finish at Star City events is like my average finish is like sixth or something over the last <laughs> two and a half years. And I can't day two an open. Like I'm in the classic because I can't day two an open. I don't know what's going on there, but I am just crushing classics. So two, uh, two days of magic is a lot. Yeah, it it's a lot of magic. And then I I was convinced I had the metagame solved be, right before they banned Deathrite Shaman. Uh, I was playing miracles like the the all basics. Well, not all basics. There's one tundra and nine or ten basics depending on your build. And just miracles deck. I, it was aggressive. I had three mentors, two main deck fluster storm. Like I was ready to turn the corner and just crush these Grixis decks. I got ninth on breakers in the classic two weeks before they banned it. I won the classic the week before they banned it. And then they banned death, right? And shook up everything. Yeah. That I, I had it all figured out right at the end of that format. So you agree with the banning then? Yeah. And I, I think that this one is less horrendous than others that have happened. Like, like when survival of the fittest was still legal in legacy, I was a huge survival apologist at the time. I was like, no, you just need more graveyard hate. Play a pything needle. You're just lazy. But like, I was wrong. Absolutely wrong in that opinion. That card is busted and shouldn't be in the format. Deathrite, I think, is just makes the format very different, but not necessarily super unplayable. But I, I don't mind that it's gone. I wouldn't mind if it came back. And it, it, I'm super neutral on that card. A lot of people put it as uh, yet another card has to die for Fetchland sins. And I think that's a pretty good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, Deathrite was a sideboard card against graveyard strategies in standard. Like the, the fact that this thing taps for mana is just ridiculous. In, in addition yeah. to all these other abilities, it's just win condition, disrupts combo decks, also ramps you. It's certainly one of the more messed up cards that's been printed with the context of a fetch land perfect mana format. Yeah, the the one mana planeswalker that people like to call it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so give us a quick uh, overview of the Invitational you won, and then we can get to the then we can get to Eternal Weekend. So that Invitational, I I was locked into my standard deck uh, pretty early, like that. That invitation was just a perfect example of having the perfect deck for a tournament. There were a lot of people in that room who were better than me. There were a lot of people in that room who tested more and worked harder than me. Brennan DeCandio's Grixis Colossus deck. I was watching his stream. I watched him just crush everyone with it. And that deck was on a different power level than every other standard deck that there was. And it was totally answerable. Like Dispossess was in that format. They could just on turn three exile the Colossuses out of your deck and you can't really win anymore. Because Brennan was crushing on Moto, Moto shifted quickly. The the Moto metagame moves so quickly. Like if you lose to Grixis Metalwork Colossus, you're gonna have like three dispossess in your deck by the next afternoon. And then that deck's gonna stop winning. But real life's a lot slower than that. And people were like looking at the Moto results and like, oh, Colossus isn't putting up numbers, it's bad. It's like, no, Colossus isn't putting up numbers because it's good and everyone respects that. I don't think I played against a single hate card in standard that entire tournament. I was just like pooping out 11 11s the entire day, 10 10s. I don't even know how, how big that card is. It's too big to deal with is what I'm saying. And just nobody, nobody had answers. I just walked through the standard portion. Then the, the modern portion, this was 
when this was the first era that modern, I think was a good format because death shadow was just obviously the best deck that allowed a metagame to form around it. But before death shadow, modern was just the wild west. Everyone was just playing whatever they wanted to. There was like 30 tier 1.5 decks, no tier one, a giant tier two right under that. It, it was just a guess. It was just Russian roulette when you sit down, like, what am I going to play against? Is it a 90-10 or a 10-90? And that was modern. Grixis Shadow really forced a metagame to exist. Like all the, a lot of like the nonsense, the peripheral like tier one, five and two decks were just unplayable because they can't beat Grixis Shadow. Tron emerged, Eldrazi Tron, as one of the threats to Grixis Shadow. And I had this mono-white Hate Bears deck, just Death and Taxes, that was great against the tier both of the Tier 1 decks. And I just played against Tier 1 decks and just beat them. Like Grixis didn't have a chance. Eldrazi was even better of a matchup. And the in the, the top 8, the, the Burn player lost in the top 8, so I didn't have to play against them. And then Adrian Sullivan's Lantern Control deck lost, so I didn't have to play against that. And I just had this cakewalk of, I just beat just like slow Abzan, beat Eldrazi, beat Grixis Shadow in the top eight, top four, and finals, just like we drew it up. And it was that that format, it just felt like, uh, like in anime, when like someone's going so fast that they're just a bunch of vertical lines. Like that's how I felt. Like, <laughs> it was just like vertical lines that people were trying to punch. And it felt Boom, awesome. boom, boom, you're dead next. Boom, 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 you're dead next. Exactly. I've always wondered, and this is the first time I've ever gotten to talk to somebody who's gotten to make one. First off, did you know you wanted to make a monk when you got into the top eight? Or even before you got even to the tournament, did you? how, how far ahead did you plan, you know, if you're going to make a token? Because a lot of people like that as their, you know, pointing, pointing towards the grandstand, like, I'm going to win this, I'm going to make a blank token, that's going to motivate me. Or were you like, oh, I made top eight, I got to think of something. Or, oh, I won, I'd really need to think of something. So this was a many tiered decision that in the past, like watching the invitational from my couch at home, I would always say like, I would totally just make this token or that token. My genius token that I never said out loud because I didn't want anyone to steal it was an upkeep stop where I'm just like a Gandalf looking wizard with like a stop sign. And it's like, you shall not pass. And it's just like an object you set on top of your deck. So you remember your upkeep triggers. But uh, once I was at once I was actually sitting there like, you need to make a token, what is it? I, I couldn't pull the trigger on that. <laughs> yeah, and then it came down to like, like this was before they banned Top and Legacy and before they restricted Mentor and Vintage. Like Monastery Mentor was the creature for me at the time. Like, it was crushing both the formats that I liked the most. And uh, Jacob Wilson oh, wow. already was a monk, but it was like a few years removed and they had already recycled a few tokens. So... Like I didn't feel super bad about being the same token again. It was either that or the Monarch. That was my backup. But I would never actually play the Monarch. I'm more likely to lose to the Monarch. And I, I, I <laughs> You'd rather not look at yourself beating you. Exactly. I don't want to be <laughs> Miracles versus Death and Taxes. They resolve Palace Jaller, and then I just watch myself bury myself for the rest of the game. So how could I do this to me? Right. So I... I went with Monk. Uh, I have since waffled on whether or not Thopter would have been a better choice. My friend Alex Bestecki, when he won his Invitational a couple years earlier, he wanted to be a Thopter, but he was told he couldn't do that because of copyright concerns. Like, Thopter is just not a word in the dictionary. Like, Monk is a word in the dictionary. Zombie is a word in the dictionary. But Thopter might have been a Wizards of the Coast-owned word. And he was told to pick something else. And... 
I, I didn't ask because I knew the story, but Thopter and Monk were like the two eternal all-star evergreen tokens that I was considering. And I just ended up going with Monk. And, and you, you got to say in the art, I'm assuming, because this is very specific. And I think that's the best part about it. Yeah, that was that was the weirdest part, because like the entire process of like pick a token, sit down for your interview with Nick Miller, go take promo photos and be done probably took 10 minutes. Like from the moment that I my opponent extended the handshake to when my photo ops and everything were done was probably just a whirlwind 10 minutes. While the camera guy was taking my pictures, he was taking some like reference images for the future token. And I was like, do I, do I get a say in this? And they were like, uh, yeah, I guess if you want. And like, I was like, can I have like ancestral recall pyramid and like maybe like the gush happening like behind me and like a mock somewhere. And they were just sort of like, yeah, okay. And they weren't writing anything down or anything. And I, and the whole conversation lasted like 20 seconds. It was completely one-sided. And I was like, uh, this, I don't know what just happened. But then it came out like a couple weeks later and I was like, this is exactly what I wanted. They were listening. They did keep track. So those guys, they were really good. Uh, they nailed it. You've mentioned earlier that you moved to Pittsburgh. So you got to win Eternal Weekend as the hometown hero. You said you got to sleep in your own bed. How did that feel? And then we can get into your deck list. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, for for people like I never lived in like a big city with a name that a tournament might be in until I moved to Pittsburgh after college. And there there's like a, a grant there's been a Grand Prix pick Pittsburgh every year the last three years. They've been every other year before that. Eternal Weekend moved to Pittsburgh last year. Like not only do I get to sleep in my own bed, but I get to fill the rest of my house with people I like hanging out with. Like uh Calvin Hodges from Black Magic Gaming, like him and his crew stayed with me. Like just the, the whole booth crew was there. Then uh Nick Cummings, a guy from upstate New York, was in town and I guess his lodging fell through. And I was like, totally, I have another couch. So I got to hang out with all my friends, get dinner with friends every night, and also get a good night's sleep. Like, it was really nice. Yeah, I I know you're familiar with those people because i saw you with the the bmg belt which i love every picture of someone in that belt that thing is amazing yeah played paradoxical outcome at the tournament people who are familiar with magic online just to fast forward to the finals for a quick second shops versus paradoxical in the finals sounds like every other magic online results you know deciding on that for the uh tournament seems pretty simple but uh were you always going to be on paradoxical or where did you think of any sort of deck list in the meantime i'm assuming you did some testing on magic online like what was your path to i have these 75 sleeved up let's try to win a tournament so i was always going to be on paradoxical outcome for this tournament uh, and the reason for that spanned several years uh the last three eternal weekend vintage main events i played shops last year i played the exact same 75 as rich shea we uh t did a little building testing and theory crafting together and he went undefeated until the finals i went one and three drop the year oh, before God. that i played the uh white aldrazi deck like another non-blue prison deck like i've I kept trying to be smart. Like, how do I beat these broken blue decks? But the year before that, I played Oath and just loved my life. Like, it was like the uh, 
dig through time. Like Oath Grizzlebrand's the only target. Once you trigger Oath, oh, you just yeah. draw 14, you win the game immediately. Like basically every time. I, I wanted to go back to properly vintaging. Like I, I didn't want to squeeze other people's vintage cards. I wanted to play my own. And I, I just decided I was going to be broken and have a lot of fun with my deck at this tournament before I even started looking at lists. And PO is the place to be if you want to be a broken vintage player right now. Yeah, definitely. I uh, watching Matt Murray stream. He just snap concedes to like a PO for five plus. Like he doesn't even let them go through it. It's just like PO leads into more POs, and then you start floating mana. It's it's definitely a really efficient combo deck. And what I like most about it is that it's a storm deck that doesn't punish you for playing out all your jewelry early which yeah. I think is the best part yeah. about it. It's very cool. So for your lists, first off, I'm not sure if you knew this, but your round nine match, you literally were off the deck list by one card. I heard that later, but I did not know that at the time. He has, you had two sideboarded fluster storms. He had one fluster storm and one, um, what's it called? A Campbell. The Campbell. Yeah, he had one combo. So a combo or a fluster storm difference between your two decks. So did you get the list offline? Uh, I noticed that, you know, you mentioned in your interview that it doesn't have Tinker Blight Steel. It doesn't have Vault Key on purpose. You play the maximum for Mox Opals. You had the main deck Tendrils of Agony, which not everyone runs. And I thought interesting the sideboard Caracas, but I might just be behind the times and that's what everyone's doing. Uh, so this, my 75 I played was taken directly from the Vintage Challenge on October 3rd, uh, the Power 9, that's Justin Franks. He played this exact 75 and he did well in the Moto Vintage Challenge. I had been testing, like most of my test games were with the uh, Blightsteel Vault Key Tinker Package. It was just, it was just clunky enough that I wasn't super happy about it. I did. A, I ran a bunch of games with Rich Shea Tuesday night leading up to Eternal Weekend. He was on the shops deck that he top aided with. And we were having games where he would mulligan to six cards. He'd keep a hand with a, a giant clock, but no disruption. Like, like turn one, uh, Foundry Inspector, then like two Steel Overseers or something. And then I was just losing to that. Like my deck was just clunky enough that this turn three or four o'clock out of shops with zero disruption was beating me. And I, I was not okay with that. Like if shops keeps the sketchy hand without disruption, I want to punish them. I want them. I don't want them to get another turn. That's, and that was just, that was really illuminating. And then rich messaged me the link to this deck list that night. I put it together on Wednesday. I played it in a trial on Thursday. I went four and one in the trial, learned some tricks, Learned, learned how to play this deck, learned how to sideboard a little bit. And then uh, Friday morning we were off. So I had played five total matches with this build before the tournament. But I had many more practice matches in with the, the PO archetype overall. Yeah, just just this version. Yeah, so um, I'm assuming it cha that changed a lot of your uh, paths because you couldn't go, oh, I have one half, I can go for the other half. And easy, oh, I can get a turn one tinker versus shops and beat them. Um, did you ever miss the parts that you took out or do you, you just, I like what, you know, taking out the, 
I can draw half of something and it doesn't do anything. Basically two two card combos in your deck. Yeah, I, I never missed it at all because all of your two t- card combos are now one card combos. Like rather than like, oh, I have this key. Let me find a time vault somehow. You're just like, I have mind's desire. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> but, and like I natural tendrils to people a number of times. Like we just, they fe- they crack some fetch lands. Maybe they play a thought seize. They tap an ancient tomb or something there at 16. And then I'm just like, end of turn Hercules me. And then like just mox, 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 tendrils for seven copies. You're dead. I did it on camera a couple times. Yeah, those so, yeah. things happen. And I never missed, like I never missed having Blightsteel Colossus in my hand. Not once. Did you did you see um, did you get a chance to co- get the coverage where somebody flipped their Karn and it was Tinker Blightsteel? <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's just good. Back so they added exiled Tinker and a stupid Blightsteel in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's the kind of thing that I just didn't want happening. I want. I just want my foot on the gas. It's like no clunkers, just beat them. You mentioned you own duels and forces. Did you do you borrow power or do you own power? Uh, I own that power. Uh, during my my judging years, when I was in college, when I was judging exclusively, but I was still a uh, quote unquote eternal player. I back in the day, Moxin were like two hundred to three hundred dollars, and that was about what the store credit compensation for working a Star City weekend was. So I would just work a weekend, get a Mox. Work a weekend, get a Mox. And I'd work a Grand Prix and I would have like my compensation plus a pack of Judge Foils. Like that's an ancestral recall. Uh, over about a year and a half, I just converted all my Judge compensation into power uh, back in like the 2010, 2011 era. So that is my power. You, you literally grinded for your power. That's that's actually yeah. pretty awesome we'll, to hear. So, we'll work for okay. power. Yep. <laughs> we'll work for power. We can actually talk about your altars then since they're they're your cards. So do you have two or did did I miss one? I think I also was the Ancestral and the Lotus. Yeah, so the I have the Ancestral Recall and the Black Lotus. Uh those I everybody take a collective sigh of relief. Those altars are on the perfect fit inside the sleeve. Those are not on the card. Nobody has drawn on my power, actually. I had this I was working a Grand Prix back when I still judged. Christopher Rush was one of the artists. This was at the beginning of that period, like right before he died, he had a period where he came out of hiding and he was just working a lot of events. This was the beginning of that. And I was like, wow, Chris Rush is here. Like, what do I do with my Black Lotus? Like, I just struggled with it all weekend. Like, do I want him to draw on my Black Lotus? Like, even though it's mine, even though it's his art, like, do I want this? And then, uh, Mike Caffrey, he owns uh, Tales of Adventure, the the store. He he was like, just have him alter the sleeve. And it was just like amazing. Like light went on. I just like gave Christopher Rush my Black Lotus and I gave him like 30 or 40 bucks. And I was like, do something cool with this. <laughs> I'll check back with you later. He made it into a big silly flower, which at the time I will admit, I was like, this is not quite what I had in mind. But now, now that I'm used to it and like, I don't know if, you've ever drawn a black lotus when you really need it but that's the face you make that like big goofy flower smile like that's <laughs> how you feel on the inside when you rip that lotus and I, I i've grown to love it even though it's a little goofy it's not quite what i had in mind when i handed it to him but i love it and i'm glad i have it and the ancestral recall is the same uh it that's that altar is on the sleeve i handed it to mark Poole. i said you know uh go nuts man do do what you want to do 
And it was at an Eternal Weekend two years ago, which I think was on actual Halloween or very close to it. And he just turned it into that like scary pumpkin head guy. And that one I, I did love from the moment I saw it, just like that black night sky and that orange pumpkin popping off it. So I, I'm a huge fan of of that. But my, my cards are safely behind the sleeve. Don't worry. I mean, I, I have I have seen a lot of things uh, done directly to the power. So um, honestly, it doesn't matter either way if it's on the sleeve or not. It just seems like you have to be super careful with it because that's a sleeve you cannot split. Right. <laughs> yeah. And someday I think that if they start getting a little grungy or something, I'll have to just retire the altar, just put that somewhere safe in like a, a binder pocket or something. And I'll just have this, this black Lotus altar. That's not on a black Lotus anymore. I got, I understand it is a uh, non-permanent medium, but I think that is better over. I'm more comfortable with that than in having it permanently on my black Lotus. You should, you should try to find one of those like misprint blank cards and then you can put it in the little, uh, plastic thing and just have like a little stand for it so it doesn't get in the way so you just see the art yeah that would do it good luck for your tournament you played a lot on camera so we have a lot of like very specific stuff to talk about let's go off camera first how did your tournament go i'm not sure i think you won you won all your games on camera actually yes because they did a time walk for round two and then rounds nine and 10, and then the top eight, which, you know, of course you won every match. But what happens off camera? Um, anything cool, like cool play-wise happened to you that your opponent did? If the metagame was what you expected or if it surprised you? Uh, I think the metagame was exactly what I expected. I played against uh, an unpowered deck in round one. And then I played against some other PO decks, some shops decks, and some control decks like that. That's what you can expect out of Vintage. My deck choice rewarded me a few times. I played against shops twice in the Swiss. And in round one, I played against the Mono Red Prison deck, the, the powerless or budget build, which for the record, I think is an awesome budget deck. If you're trying to get into Vintage on the budget, Like that, that deck is actually totally viable. I just vintaged all of those players, those non-blue decks. Uh, and I played against Survival once. I played against Survival, Two Shops, and uh, a Mono Red Prison. And I just vintaged them. They don't have blue cards in their deck. They can't stop me. Like, if I Hercules that Null Rod, they are done. And that's exactly what happened in all four of those matches. One of the Shops matches, uh, there was kind of a, like weird little moment where my rules familiarity helped me out. I kept a hand with Mana Crypt, Soul Ring, and One Land, Hercules Recall, and PO. I was on the play and I deployed all my fast mana in my land. Uh, they had a turn one revoker for the Soul Ring. And then they had a turn two. They had another revoker for the Mana Crypt as well. And I had to they did it second main, and I had to float mana in response to the revoker, or else it was never happening again. And it resolved, and he said go. And I said, with, with my floating mana, I used my land plus those two to Hercules him. And then he was like, ah, oh, man, okay, go. He just didn't realize that we were still in his main phase. He could have redeployed one of those revokers or a, a sphere or something that he had. Like Some of his mana was Moxon, so that gave me a free window to go off that uh, in the, in a later round or against someone with more experience, I wouldn't have had. So that's a 
a moment where I just genuinely understood the game better than an opponent and accidentally got rewarded for it. On the on the other side, my only loss in the tournament was to Standstill in round four. Uh, this one, he beat me game one, just like squeezed me out uh, the way Standstill does. Uh, the I believe he had main deck Stony Silence and the Wastelands took me off my colored mana. I only have the two C's on a trop without my artifacts available. Or not trop, tundra. Two C's and a tundra to cast colored spells, like non-blue spells. And after the the Wasteland on the first underground C, I was just out of win cons. And then game two, we got into this crazy long game where he had two Stony Silence, an Energy Flux, and a Moat. So I couldn't kill him with Mentor. I couldn't PO. I couldn't do like anything that I need to do. However, I maneuvered the game to a point where he passed the turn with only Flusterstorm in his hand. Like, he had one mana available and Flusterstorm. That, that was it. I had been holding tendrils for the entire game, and I hercled myself at the end of end step. So now I had like six or seven artifacts in my hand that I could play for free, even though I, I couldn't activate them. I could still build Storm with them. And I had my four mana with my lands, and I put all the cards in my hand. I just needed a way to protect it from Flusterstorm. And I drew for turn, and it was like a, a ponder preordain, and I cast that, and couldn't didn't find Flusterstorm, and then I had a Karn in play, and I like said, all right, I'm, I guess this Karn's gonna have to hit two Flusterstorms, and then I was I said plus Karn, and pointed at Karn, and as I pointed at Karn and said that, I realized there was already a Flusterstorm under Karn, like I just had the deterministic everything I need win, like I could have flustered his fluster and stormed him out and i just totally missed it i forgot that karn had banked any cards earlier in the game and i just i just missed it it was i i beat myself up pretty hard on that one for several hours which is that that is part of my process where i just make myself feel really bad so i don't want to feel really bad again which i don't know if that's healthy but that when i punt like if i get beat it's fine it's like okay that's magic but like if i beat myself like i I let myself hear it over that. So I, I just onboard punted. Uh, we That was in turns. So we weren't, that game was not ending. That match was not going to end, but I could have been 3-0-1 instead of 3-1 after round four. And I just completely blanked. Other than that, uh, oh, I played against a Grixis control deck in round seven. That was really cool. They just had like planeswalkers and removal spells. And they had that creature from Battle Bond that, it searches your deck for a, a, an instant or sorcery that costs two or less. It's a three mana one one. Spellseeker? Spellseeker, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, that card was pretty cool. This person, I, I think I edged out game one. They edged out game two with their sideboard cards. And then game three, I, I tendrils him for exaxes in extra turns. So that was a game that Mentor wouldn't have won. Blightsteel wouldn't have won. Like I needed tendrils of agony in my deck. And. Uh, I, I managed to string it together on a turn where the shields were down. So that that was that was my tightest match in the in the Swiss leading up to my <laughs> round ten. Anyway, we can start with uh, round two. So for uh, round two, you're against Benjamin Burke, who was playing Oath. So this was a time walk match. We actually got to see the entire match. It seemed pretty straightforward, but if uh, go ahead on it. Um, game one was straightforward. I just PO'd him. Uh, I love Oath of Druids. I wish I could play Oath in every tournament. Like if if the world was what I wanted to, to be, I would just play Oath all the time. But 
Oath is a huge dog to fast broken combo decks. That's just always been true in every iteration of vintage. Like Oath is just a slower, clunkier combo deck than the dedicated combo decks. And that rang true in our round one. He just like put up some meager resistance, then died. And then game two, he had two energy fluxes that I had to dance around for the whole match. I believe he had Oath for some amount of time, like a long time, but never had a, an Orchard to give me a creature. I spent several turns like deploying my fast mana, then in the upkeep or end step, POing them back for just like build your own ancestral recall. But I couldn't leave them in play and go off in my main phase because of this energy flux. And then uh, I had Sensei's top for most of the game, just play that. And there's a, a trick you can do with Sensei's top where you look at your top, activate the ability to look at your top three cards, and in response, activate the ability to draw a card. So then you draw a fresh card. And then you look at your top three, which now includes top, and you can move it around if you don't want it back. So I did that a lot, just trying to find new cards, never had to pay for the top through Energy Flux. Eventually, I I was drawing lots of cards. Like I had the POs active. I was, I was doing what I wanted to do other than leaving my artifacts in play. And I had Mentor for a long time, but he had Oath, so I couldn't just jam it. Uh, I don't want to give him a creature to trigger his Oath with. But uh, eventually I found a turn where I got, I knew I could get to time walk and that's the turn I played mentor and then cast time walk and his oath was never an issue. So that one took a little dancing, but I was never really under threat. And uh, actually for your first match, um, you showed your opponent mind's desire, but then you ended up not winning that turn. What happened? Oh, okay. Yeah. Now I remember what happened there. I made a, t- a very tiny mistake while I was going off that ma- meant I had to pass the turn instead of just winning. Uh, I was in the Yogwill and I had dig through time in my graveyard and I had a, uh, I had activated a top, the sensei's top, and I knew I didn't want my top three cards. So I needed a shuffle. I knew I had no more lands to get, like all five of my fetchable lands were in play and I had a flooded strand in my hand and a scalding card in my graveyard. And I just defaulted on the normal action of like, use these cards while I can with Yogwill. So I played the scalding tarn out of my graveyard for the fetch rather than the flooded strand in my hand. And then that scalding tarn wasn't there when I went to dig through time later. So I had to pay one more actual mana instead of being able to delve that scalding tarn. And then when the dig resolved, I was one mana short of casting Mind's Desire and I was one mana short of D-Tutor for Tendrils. Like I had five mana, but not six. And that would have been it. Like if I had just shuffled with the land from my hand, had an untapped Mox left over when I went for that dig, I would have won the game on the spot. A- as it stood, I had to pass the turn, then win the game easily on the next turn. Like my shields were up and I had drawn a million. Like I wasn't losing, but that little mistake did give my opponent one more draw step. Yeah, because you just proceeded to, he dax your soul ring, and then you just PO for eight and deterministically win. Right, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure he had to plus Dak there too. We talked about that after the match. Like, stealing my soul ring is pretty negligible when he knows he has nothing in hand. Or, I, I yeah, I probed him during the turn I was going off and saw only polluted Delta, and he drew Dak played the Delta, played the deck, stole my soul ring. He should have played deck and plus tried to turn that polluted Delta into a fluster storm or something. 
there was not a whole lot that he could have done in that spot regardless. But I showed him the mind's desire uh, because when I resolved dig, he was like, do you have tendrils? And I was like, no, but I have this. And I showed him mind's desire, but then I realized I couldn't cast it. So it went back into the deck and just had to take another turn. It's very interesting how there are like very, very small things that really can mean a lot. Just like a fetch land activation, stuff like that. So, and among, even amongst, especially amongst that turn where I was doing so much and I was going so broken. I saw so many cards. I made so much mana, just exiling that card from my, the land from my graveyard instead of from my hand, just cost me that turn, cost me the win that turn. So it's really easy to get into that. Like, it didn't matter, but like it totally did. Yeah, honestly, the the smallest bits sometimes really can matter. Although I really wanted to see that Mind's Desire for what was it going to be like 10, 12? Oh, a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> after I lost to that standstill player, after I punted that match, my next round was against Shops. And I uh, turned two on the play not ten, uh, desired for 30. So there was quick redemption after that punt. Like that got me off tilt immediately. <laughs> Just like that's that's when you uh, reach for your deck, turn it upside down and let your opponent know they've died. Very good. Very good. good glad to know that you got uh, Mind's Desire Redemption. Okay, so now we can go to round nine. So round nine was the first of two very interesting situations that you ran into before hitting top eight. Uh, go ahead on round nine uh yeah so like you said it was the 74 card mirror one of the differences was that or the only difference was that i had an extra fluster storm on my list to his one Campbell. uh we both had the one main deck fluster storm and not he didn't have it when i went for my combo and i just had it first and then game two was shaping up to be awesome we both led on library our our second land drop was academy for both of us like we were both in the library with academy active However, I like I even had a Mystic Remora and two Flusterstorms. So like I resolved a Mystic Remora. I had double Flusterstorm. Like the next turn I was gonna go off with double Flusterstorm backup and still with Remora in play. But this uh unfortunate thing happened where my opponent in his upkeep activated library. He drew up to eight cards in hand. And then he just started playing his turn. He was like, activate library, draw, play Mox Jet. And then the judge was like, wait, you should have an extra card. Then there was this kind of strange back and forth between the judges trying to determine whether they need to actually back up the game state and put Mox Jet back in his hand, or if they just like shortcut it and say Mox Jet's still in play, but draw a card. Like that, that is a seemingly irrelevant nuance, but uh, in the the world of judge policy, that might actually matter a lot. Like if he draws something that like makes him want to save the mox jet for a later turn, versus like you've already committed to that, put that in your hand. It could functionally change the game where that mox jet is when he draws his card. Uh, my opponent got super flustered that he made the mistake at all, and then that these judges were going back and forth and they couldn't just tell him to draw the card. He ended up picking up the Mox Jet, drawing a card, playing his land for turn, and passing. Uh, he just forgot to redeploy the Mox Jet after playing his land, and he passed the turn with eight cards in hand. This was when I drew the Mystic Remora, played it, it resolved, and I was like mapping out my next turn, how I was going to win with all this protection. And then he's like, oh, I have eight cards in hand. And it turned out to be his 
third game rule violation of the tournament. Game rule violation is just what it sounds like. It's if you violate the rules of the game. If you do something that Magic the Gathering says you can't do, then you've committed a game rule violation. And the way judge policy works is that the third time you do that in a tournament, it's upgraded to a game loss. Like the first two are just warnings like, hey, be more careful. The third one is like, you've had two warnings. Now this is a stricter punishment because we can't just keep having you violate the rules of the game. The head judge got involved to administer this game loss. Uh, I asked the judge if we could downgrade it because, you know, like this match, this game is going to be cool. And we're in this, <laughs> we're in this tight situation. And he was like, flustered because the the other two judges had that weird conversation in front of us and the head judge uh eric levine to his credit like he stuck to policy he was compassionate yet firm in his delivery of the ruling and i imagine he was the second most miserable person in that situation like my opponent and then eric were were like the two most miserable people in the room when that was going on as a judge i've been there and it sucks it's so hard to do that but uh, he he stuck to policy and he was correct to do so, but he did not let us ignore the fact that that should have been upgraded to a game loss. He didn't give a third warning. He did, in fact, give the game loss. So that match ended and uh, that was round nine, <laughs> which we thought was a win and in at the time. Uh, my opponent, he he took a walk around the venue, just like blew off a little steam and he came back within five minutes and just like shook my hand, wish me good luck and top eight and like apologize for being so scatterbrained. But uh, so like he, he bounced back pretty quick. Uh, he was a good dude. I agree with you. That game was looking to be really, really exciting. Like, cause you, you, you basically were mirroring each other's early plays. And I guess if you had two fluster, you kind of, you kind of had it, but we, we saw a couple big stacks over the weekend, but that probably would have been, really exciting for that so i guess we can go to round 10 where you thought it was a winning in but uh, you got the pair down and you couldn't draw and then you had to play out so uh of all the games this one seems like it was the most exciting at least a whole lot happened in game three so uh go ahead with your uh, round 10 yeah so uh like you said, I had the worst breakers. I didn't look at standings going into round nine because I knew I had to get one more win and my tiebreakers don't matter. But after I won, I checked out the standings and myself, Rich Shea, and Marshall Arthurs were all within 0.02% of each other at the bottom of the uh, X1s. So things could have moved and Rich or Marshall could have been the pair down, but uh, things stayed solid and it was me. And that was a a crappy position anyway, because Rich is one of my dearest friends and Marshall is also, he's, he lives in Eastern Ohio, which is basically Pittsburgh. So he's around all the time. Like those were my two closest allies playing for top eight. I knew one of us would have to play and the other two would be able to shake hands, but it, it held up. The breakers held up and I had to play. My opponent could not draw because he was seven O and two on the weekend. Undefeated. Yeah. And it was also like there's an extra layer of weirdness there because he's already un unintentionally drawn twice. And if we unintentionally draw again, I'm in top eight. So like he has to win. Like he can't just hold his ground again. That was another consideration. Not that I would play slow. That's cheating on purpose to waste time. But like if the game did go long, uh, there was there were reasons to make him play it out. 
I don't remember exactly what happened game one. We squeaked back and forth and he controlled me enough to win somehow. Uh, game two, I believe he had some disruption, maybe a null rod or something, but I, I had mentor, like my opening hand just contained mentor. That was the plan from turn one. And that sidesteps basically everything they're trying to do, like Flusterstorm, Spell Pierce, Null Rod, just Monastery Mentor arrives. And it just ignored all of his hate. Then game three was pretty exciting. We had a lot of early exchanges that left us both pretty much empty. Like not, I didn't have a threat. I didn't have any way to dig deeper. I think he might have been actual Hellbent at one point. Like he, I think he missed his second land drop on turn one after I fought over his ancestral recall uh, in my end step and ended up winning that fight. And then he missed a second land drop. And uh, we, when the dust cleared, it was stable, but looked okay for me. But then very shortly after that, he jammed null rod. And my, my draw to that point had been one actual land and a lot of artifact mana. I, I was just in a ton of trouble there. Like, Tolarian Academy fixes all problems. Like, I think my hand was like uh, a PO or two. Uh, there, I don't think there was a Hercules because that would have made the line too easy. I don't remember exactly, but I, I couldn't do anything. But I knew if I drew Academy, I would be able to do everything. So I just, or if I just hit my land drops before he finds a clock, I'm also fine there. But I continued to draw Artifact Mana and Paradoxical Outcomes for pretty much the rest of the entire game. Uh, I, I had Time Twister in my hand and like two POs at one point, I think. Never drew a second actual land. Uh, in the meantime, he had assembled a seven card hand. He cast and he found a threat. On the turn he cast Young Pyromancer, he cast it with Tropical Island Library of Alexandria. He had several volcanic islands in play. He had the mana, but he he tapped two lands that don't cast that card. And like my brain triggered like that's a grv and then i was like oh no 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 no, not again so i, <laughs> I, I again, just like didn't really say anything and then he noticed like a few seconds later he's like oh i need red mana and i was just like yeah dude go ahead fix it like go <laughs> like don't let these judges see it because like on camera you have a judge right next to you uh, there's uh one judge who's relaying information back to the table back to the the coverage booth and then there's another judge who's there for the the backup match and the backup match was over at this point. So both judges were just sitting, staring at us. And I was just like, I was just like, yeah, it's fine. And he fixed his mana and we kept playing. And a couple turns later, I, when I was dead on board, I had, so my line was to draw Academy cast P Academy would have made seven mana, which is enough to PO to draw X. However many X was at the time with three mana floating, which is enough to repeal the null rod with the repeal that I find off my PO. And this is all assuming any of this resolves through his seven card hand, which I know isn't going to happen, but like I had a quote unquote out. So I drew for my turn. It was an Academy. And I just like had already accepted a turn ago that my tournament was over and it was an academy. I just looked at it like, okay. And I was about to extend my hand to shake his and wish him luck in top eight. And he goes, I have eight cards in hand. And I was just like, no, you don't. And like, we're sitting right there. I saw your, yeah, I, I yeah. was absolutely horrified. And the two judges were sitting right there. The same two judges who had given the 
the ruling last round and they were like, well, that's a game rule violation. Do you have any other ones this tournament? And he said, yes. So they got the head judge immediately. Uh, my opponent had a, a long debate with the head judge over uh, you know, any anything he could grasp for to stop this game loss from happening. Like I had to get up from the table. Like, it was so uncomfortable. I just like went and walked around for a while while they figured it out. Oh, once again, uh, the head judge, he stuck to policy, even though this was an actual win and in this was a you know, very expensive game loss, but uh, that is policy. Like if, if it was table 200 instead of table one, like if we were at Oh and nine in this tournament and this happened, nobody would care. Like you can't give table one better preference through policy than table 200. Like that's the whole point of having judges. It's the whole point of having these documents to guide how they function. Like it, it needs to be consistent. And he delivered his game loss. And then I was in the very weird position of, I am elated that I'm top, first seed going into top eight. I'm also horrified that this just happened. And this guy who just got utterly crushed, he went from, he just went from first place in top eight to top 16 or whatever, because of this game loss. Like he's just beside himself. All my friends want to jump up and down and high five and hug. And I'm just trying to be like, guys, guys, no, kind of like not here. Like save it for dinner. Like th this is, this is so uncomfortable. It's just really hard to process both. Like this sucks so hard. And this is so awesome at the same time. I hope it didn't taint it at all, but it definitely is that thing where it's like, oh, well, I worked really hard to get here, but then I just get gifted this game that I literally lost. Yeah, my opponent asked after the ruling if I would concede to him, and I double-checked with the judge. I was like, would that work? And the judge said, no, this match is already over. There, there was nothing I could do. There, There is the very like undeniable counter-argument that I played better than my opponents that day. Like, I played tighter. I had zero GRBs for the tournament, and my opponents each stacked up three. So it, it's not like they're like victims completely. It's not like a judge stole their tournament. Like the, you do need to follow the rules of the magic when you play, but it, it, that doesn't make it less uncomfortable or less weird that that was my path to the top eight. And that it happened in back-to-back -back rounds too. It was just awful. That, that was a general consensus. Everyone was like, wait, isn't this the same guy this just happened to? Yeah, I'm sure. I don't actually read the comments just as a rule. I never read the comments, but I'm sure Twitch chat had a lot of, harsh things to say about me even though the judges were right there like i i didn't call a judge and you know as an aside a controversial aside i wouldn't fault someone if they did call a judge there like that's what judges are for like the the like snitches get stitches mentality is how cheaters flourish like you, you should call a judge if you're uncomfortable but that said i did not call a judge they were just there i asked for the downgrades they i didn't get them and i i, I tried yeah, I, I, I feel like I would try to do the same thing. I just, it, it's it's so easy to be like, oh, cool, I got a free win. But it's also very easy to put yourself in their position where it's like, if there's something you could do, like you lost that. If I can just give them the win, that's fine. I lost, as you can tell. One The one turn he passed with eight cards in hand. I actually were rewatching the footage. I watched his hand very closely and that was the only turn he wasn't, he, he, I watched him like double check his hands and then he passed. 
And it's like, but you, you know, you've, you've gotten fine, you know? Also, one thing I wanted to bring up from in between uh, games two and three, I noticed that you rechecked your deck. Were you thinking of like a different uh, sideboard setup or were you just seeing what you have and trying to prep yourself for the next game? Because that's when when your uh, opponent, Rasmus, was on a bathroom break, which bathroom break in the middle of a round is pretty nice. Pretty nice perk of being uh, on camera. So brief aside on that, you can always take a bathroom break if you have to pee and you call a judge and you ask for the bathroom they have to say yes that is built into their rules like they can never deny you the bathroom they might ask you to leave your phone on the table when you go but you can always take a bathroom break if you need it in magic but yeah my opponent he needed a break and then i always double check my deck like even if i know i'm not changing anything i'll pick it up move some cards around just to look like i am like a lot of the times you don't do this much in vintage, but like in legacy, I'll usually play with the number of force of wills in my deck. Like I'll have like two, if they're just like, if they have like two things I'm worried about, I'll leave in two force of wills or like I'll cut down to zero or one. And a lot of the time in legacy, I'll like pick up my sideboard and bring back in the force of will I took out and take out a different force of will just to like, just to look like I'm (laughs) changing my plan. Like there, there is some value in doing that. I, I think in this matchup, I wasn't sure how many Karns I was supposed to have, or like if I'm supposed to have how many, like I have access to four Hercules. Like, am I supposed to just be on this, like fight over Hercules to clear his Null Rod plan? Am I supposed to ignore Null Rod with Karn? I, I genuinely wasn't sure what my position in this matchup was supposed to be. So I'm sure I was thinking pretty hard about all of those things when he was in the bathroom. Okay, so yeah, so top eight, I'm sorry, the Swiss was on yes. Friday? Swiss was on Friday, and then top eight was on Sunday. Did you play in the Legacy event? Uh, I was as well? briefly enrolled in the Legacy tournament. I would not say I played much Legacy though. Uh, it did not go well for me. <laughs> <laughs> what did you end up playing? And uh, so I had two buys, and I ended up three three, including the buys. So I went one and three in matches played. What did you? What did you end up playing? Was it just uh, not right for the room? Uh, I played or? Miracles because I, I do believe Miracles is the best stack in Legacy. I played again in my first match in round three. I played against David Long, who is a known master of lands and green black depths. Didn't make any mistakes. That matchup is tough anyway. Uh, I also sideboarded as if he was turbo lands, but he's actually more of like the the mid range. Uh, just green black the rock with this lands combo finish. I, I just sideboarded wrong and got immediately punished for it. So I, I lost that one, and then. I got paired against a Grixis control deck, which is already kind of a tough matchup. But this person had, it was actually Kyle Dorgan, my top four opponent for, from Sunday. We, we got paired in the Legacy Swiss as well. And he had Basic Mountain in his deck, which is not a card that Grixis control usually plays. And my plan leans heavily on back to basics. So I parried him to this turn where like I stuck like back to basics and to fairy in the same turn and i basically like made him pick what he was going to deal with his with his red mana but then he had basic mountain and could just deal with everything so i was lost to that one and then uh i i played against the local uh he is nicknamed the modern master because he played the same modern legal deck in modern legacy and vintage for like two years he actually beat me in a vintage top eight with his modern legal deck once it was i, I had no chance <laughs> What's the deck? Uh, it was uh, 
black white edicts, like basically like dead guy Al. Like he had like Tide Hello Scholars and like Liliana of the Vale and uh Gatekeeper of Malakir, stuff like that. And I was on uh I was on Blue Moon or or Blue Angels in Vintage back when that was a deck. And that deck's plan is to deploy more creatures than most vintage decks can deal with. But his deck can deal with creatures all day. So I <laughs> utterly destroyed me in a vintage top eight with his his modern Dead Guy L deck. With his godless yeah, shrines. I, I think with his prize money from that tournament, he bought a scrub land. So good for him. But uh, yeah, I, I defeated him in Legacy. He was my one win on the day. And then uh, in my last Legacy round, my red-black reanimator opponent had a turn one Grizzlebrand with disruption both games. And that was that. So did you... So with your, your newfound extra time... Did you end up testing for your quarterfinal matchup because you knew yes. what it would be? Because uh, Cosmos deck was pretty crazy. It had four Notion Thief. On the yeah, the Thief. Notion Thief, thank you. It had four Notion Thieves in it, which usually you see two, one, one has a joke. But he, this, he was like, I want four. And apparently he was right because top eight. When I made top eight Friday night, Alex Bestecki, who is a friend and teammate, he messaged me immediately and was like, want me to build Cosmo's deck? And I was like, yeah, definitely. We both died in round six of Legacy and we just jammed that matchup until they kicked us out of the hall. Like it was probably four or five hours of just head down testing only that matchup. And I'm very happy that that happened because I knew exactly what my role was. I knew exactly what kind of games I could win going into Sunday morning. Between Alex and Rich, like Rich with the deck advice and sideboard help, and then Alex with that huge testing session, like those guys are as much responsible for me winning this thing as I am. Alex also did the same thing when I top eight in my Star City Envy. He was there with me and he proxied up my top eight matchup immediately. Like he had it ready when by the time I sat down at dinner later that night and we were playing it all night. Alex is a great guy to have in your corner. We we figured out that matchup pretty well in those coming four hours because your your first game was actually off camera and then the second game um was pretty exciting but go ahead and tell us about the first one and then we can talk about the second one what we determined in our testing is that i have to go broken like if i keep a hand that's like two lands a preordain a ponder uh, like i'm gonna lose like I, I need like lots of fast mana and early po usually exactly one piece of interaction like for one force of will or one fluster storm will get me over the hump if he has anything. Game one, I had a hand with uh, some fast mana, a PO, and a force blue card. He kept a hand with uh, land, black lotus, notion thief. That was, he kept a turn one notion thief. I had the force of will for it. And then I get taxi and probed him on my second turn, and he had nothing else going on. It was like, Voltaic key, no other mana sources, like maybe like Wheel of Fortune or some crazy brick. Like it, his hand was just empty. He was all in on that Notion Thief, which would have won if it landed for sure. But I countered it and it was pretty elementary from there. I just went off. Game two. I'm trying to remember what even happened in game two. Uh, you've probably watched the video more recently than me. Want to give me a... Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I took okay. notes, so I, I can tell you everything. So the, the most important part, of most exciting part of game two was the fight you guys had over a Notion Thief. 
So he he went notion thief. You forced it. He pyroblasted it. You uh, flustered it back. He then went for brainstorm, and then it got countered. So there was this like nice, really big stack, and then you ended up stopping the notion thief. Which um, do you, you just had what repeal? Yeah, repeal is my only out to a resolve notion thief in the seventy five, and that's five five CMC, right. and you can't draw into it because that right. just feeds your opponent. Okay, so that that helped me out a little bit. Remember what happened in game two? I remember I I kept a hand that was like right on the edge of keepable according to our assessment of the matchup. Like it had academy and one artifact plus uh, some land drops and some cantrips. So if I find a second artifact off my cantrips, I am doing the the speed thing I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, I think it also had a force of will or fluster storm. But so I he was on the play this game. He was like land mocks and i was like land mocks and then he went land time twister and i was like hell yeah dude <laughs> this is what i need in my life <laughs> so uh he just twisted me into a, a new hand i lost my academy because i didn't lead on that but i had a fresh seven and i couldn't have been happier that that's how that game started we fought over that notion thief like you just described and then i believe on the next turn i drew mystic remora or like shortly thereafter, and I stuck on Remora. Oh, I had Mentor. That's what was happening, right? Uh, so you, after the whole fight, you did a Demonic Tutor. I wasn't sure if you got Yawgmoth's Will or, or Black Lotus, but after the Demonic Tutor, you went Lotus into Will. You then walked, played out the Mentor, digged, um, and I actually saw a clip of this. You almost... Like I, I feel like everyone who's played a lot of dig through time has done the right. almost put the seven into yes, your the hand. End. So I saw that, and I saw you just pull it away like really, really fast. <laughs> like no, no, no. I that actually happened to me once where I was doing that, and there literally was a judge standing behind me who like talked to me. It's like you could be really careful on that dig through time. It's like yeah, no, you're you're a hundred percent right. Like next time, I'm just gonna put my hand down and then look at it, and just switch them like two hands because like that's that's very hard to fix. I do remember that moment where luckily like I was holding seven cards in one hand and my three or four card hand in the other hand. And I like started to merge them. Like I think the corners touched of the left and right most cards. And then I was like, whoa, and pulled them apart. And I just sort of like looked at the judge, like we good. And it was fine. Like it was clear, like what cards were supposed to be where that, that would have been a nightmare to happen, but I, I caught it in time. And yeah, the, the dig found, I remember this now, I had the mentor in play and the dig found Mr. Remora and Force of Will, I think. I resolved the Remora and passed the turn and then Cosmo started doing stuff. At, like He tried cruised, I drew a card off Remora, I fought over the cruise. He won that fight, I believe, but I drew some cards, like his counter magic for my counter magic, drew me another card and then... He knew what the top two cards were already, I think, from Sensei's top. And, like, he put his cards down. I know Cosmo. We've played a lot of Magic against each other over the years. And he he's a talker. And he was like, when the crew's resolved, he's like, well, I know the top two. This one has to be good. And, like, pointed to the third one down. And he put him in his hand and was like, just kind of shrugged, like, oh, okay. And I was like, ah, oh, crap, he found something. He cast, I think it was Demonic Tutor. That was the card that he found. And... I drew for Mr. Remora and it was Force of Will. Like the, so the Remora drew me three cards that turn. The third one down was Force of Will. 
and I forced the detutor and I think that got the concession, but he had time walk and Voltaic key in hand already. And he found the detutor to get the, the vault. So he was poised to turn the corner on that one, but Mr. Cremora dug me into what I needed and got to emerge unscathed. <laughs> it, 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 you, he played walk to untap and vault yes. key. Oh, is that what happened? So you forced, yeah, you forced the walk and then you killed him with mini Okay, cobalt. yeah, I forced the walk and then he showed me a key detutor after he conceded. So that that's what happened. Yeah, so that so that that was a very uh, that that very easily could have been been game three, right? So good old Mystic Ramora. Worth noting is that he would have had to like if that walk did resolve, he would have had to cast key D tutor and time walk. So I'm drawing three more cards off my Ramora, and he had Mana Crypt in play. So we were still playing that game, uh, even if that walk did resolve. Like there was a lot more game to play. While he's taking his infinite turns, I'm continuing to draw cards. So if he casts any spells, mm. so I could start fighting over the Hercules recalls or Tinker, or well, Tinker wouldn't help, but I could fight over like his Hercules recalls that try to remove his own mana crypt. That that game would have got real weird if that I want if those spells all <laughs> resolved. But luckily, we didn't have to go there. Luckily, uh, Prowess took it yep. in the end. Monk token, too good. What kind of edge on your opponent is that? You just play yourself. <laughs> uh, some of them don't seem to notice. Some are probably intentionally not noticing. Some are like, whoa, is that you? What is this? Are, are, are you famous? <laughs> it's like, it, I, I mean, I love the invitational back in the day. So SEG doing this, I have absolutely loved. And no offense, but I think I like Alex's token oh, the best because it's yeah. so creepy. It's so creepy. It's yeah. Perfect. Alex does have one of the best tokens. Uh, speaking of which, actually, I was looking through the the deck list, and he actually has a picture of your token on his deck sheet. Below it says deck mascot. Yes, I don't know if uh, you knew he in did that. in vintage, he included my token as his deck mascot because he had mentor in his deck, and in legacy, he did the same thing with himself because he was playing Stoneblade. He he chose a mascot <laughs> for each deck. That's that's just awesome. Uh, all right, so the semifinals semifinals were were pretty simple. It's a paradoxical mirror, uh, paradoxical mirror. Pretty quick three games, but uh, third game was was pretty uh, exciting. So uh, go ahead. On yeah, that. game three was vintage, like proper vintage. I like, just like played a, a land and cantrip or something. Turn one, he he was on six. He had land mocks, knights whisper on his turn one, which told me a lot about both his plan and his deck because like I knew his deck obviously, but I told me about his plan because I bored out Night's Whisper because it's too slow in the mirror. He was trying to set up a control game and I wasn't. Uh Knights Whispered and passed back. And then I believe I went land time walk and then on my time walk turn I just started playing cards. I cast an ancestral recall which drew me into some mana and then I, there's no way I'm going to remember the entire line of everything that happened. But basically, I was just trying to like draw some cards, see some more stuff, have some more options for when he untaps next. The Ancestral Recall, I think, found two more Mox Opals to go with the Mox Opal I already had. So I just like used all three Mox Opals in Lotus Petal mode to Snapcaster Ancestral Recall. Ancestral Recall found uh, Black Lotus, the fourth Mox Opal, and tendrils. So 
just just one. Uh, now I'm remembering what happened. Turn one, I went for a turn one time twister. That's what I did off Lotus Bell. He was on the Mulligan to six, so we took a a freeze. Like the, we froze for coverage. Coverage was doing something else, so we had to sit there for a very long time after we drew our opening hands for game three. And I was like, do I jam this twister or do I try to you know, parry a little bit? And I determined that he was already on six cards. Jamming twister would either resolve or put him to four cards with the force blue card. I just went for the twister and he had the force. Then he was on four cards. Then he did the landmarks night's whisper to refill a little bit. And then I went off on my turn. Like the, like I, I had no plan to reach lethal storm that turn. I was just trying to draw some cards and get some more options for the rest of the game. And, but, uh, that, that last ancestral recall just found black Lotus, the big dopey smiley flower, which is exactly how it made me feel when I drew it. The fourth Mox Opal <laughs> and the tendrils. Those were my three cards in hand. And when I was, uh, talking about that matchup with Rich Shea the day before he, like I basically shaved one of the opals and Lotus petal in almost every matchup. But he told me, don't do that in the mirror. Like, you're built to be faster. You need to stay faster. And that game, I cast all four Lotus Petals, or all four Mox Opals and the Lotus Petal. And I won because I was faster. Rich telling me how to play my deck helped me with the game there. <laughs> and that was that was awesome. That was the, the most little vintagey thing that there was. And uh, I rewatched the coverage later and... Randy, I guess, was standing over my shoulder watching this all come together. And he then he said on camera he was describing Kyle's face when I went Lotus Mox tendrils. It was just this like split second of just like awe, rage, disgust, like everything, every emotion that you could feel when your opponent just full cheeses you out of nowhere. Like it was just like he wasn't a bad sport. He didn't like rage or like hit the table or anything. He shook my hand, but like that one split second was just like <sighs> you had to do it, exactly it had to that. be exactly that <laughs> <laughs> I, I i don't think anyone playing magic has not oh, had that have, moment yeah. of oh it had to be exactly that yeah because what was it it was repeal into probe to know the coast was clear into the snapcaster on the ancestral all your moxes and then the just just yeah tendrils yeah you. i said before just hey um i cast nine yeah i was just like on that, that like, let's see one more card plan. Like, repeal my own mox. That's a new card. Oh, it found probe. Let's take a peek. Draw another card. Oh, that's the third. The repeal found the probe. The probe found the third mox. And the third mox let me snap back the ancestral. And the ancestral found the, the fourth mox, the lotus and the tendrils. And Storm was actually like 12 to 15. Like, it was not even close. It wasn't for exact. That was a, a complete. <laughs> you're deep into the negatives, tendrils. I mean, those are the best tendrils. The tendrils they can't finish resolving because state yeah, exactly. actions have ended the game. Early in the coverage, I found this interesting. They were kind of like bad-mouthing the main deck tendrils. And I don't... It's nice to just be able to win yeah. the game. You know, some people get so like, I'm going to assume Vintage is in a certain way where if I cast three paradoxicals, my opponent's just going to concede. I'm holding, you know, 25 cards and you're going to find it. But being able to just... Like what you did in the semis, just natural tendril somebody and have to worry about leveraging it into a PO. You're not sure where it's going to go into having a card that says I win 
even though it just says I win, still not bad. I, I, I agree with, with that assessment. They basically had the mentor and the tendrils to win. So you have a tutorable tendrils to just win the game on the spot. Not to worry about stitching together the time walk with the mentor and stuff. So uh, honestly, looking at your list, I really liked your list. And I do like that you took out like the weird chaffy things because I've actually seen that in the past. Um, this is going back like really far. The old extended decks, the Balancing Tings deck that randomly side that randomly had the combo of um what was it erratic explosion and draco that you could do with the uh the one dreams card the black one where it discards two cards stack your deck as draco and erratic explosion that's that's another deck where if you ever drew the draco it wasn't going back on top of your deck so you literally have a card you don't want to draw and when you have a card you don't want to draw in your deck that's always what you're going to talk about when you need something. Yeah, Every and time. Like, since my uh, round two feature match was a uh, time shifted match, I was able to watch it in the VIP room on site that day. Like, I just finished my round three and went and sat and got some water. And then, like, oh, I'm playing on camera. So I got to watch that commentary live, <laughs> even though it was my match. Uh, yeah, I heard Randy talking about how he thinks that. Once PO's going off, it doesn't matter how you win. Like the tendrils is silly, and that's just not true. Like you're not you're not one of those decks that has literally infinite mana in your deck in your hand, and you can do whatever you want. It's not like an omniscience combo deck. Like you actually do need to have a win condition and connect with it. Like I said earlier, that the match I lost to standstill, like I could have won if I played better because I had tendrils. There, nothing else would have won that game for me. And in round seven, that Grixis control player who I beat in turns, I won because I had tendrils. Nothing else would have won that game for me. Like we saw in that round top four, like we were just talking about, tendrils did it. Like if I was on my opponent's list, my best ancestral recall there is like Black Lotus Tinker. And then I tinker and then I'm just dead to Hercules recall or something. I like being able to make the game over when you know you have the chance. And then the finals, the finals of Magic Online events all the time, uh, paradoxical versus shops. And well, I mean, it, it's it's almost good that you didn't draw because it made it that you were yeah. on the play for this match. Because what seed was? I think yeah. Nam was a high uh, seed. Nam was third. It was me, Sperling, and Nam. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he would have gone first on that game. Not sure how that really, really affected things because you just killed him turn two. But did you find out what it was in his uh, hand afterwards? He, he keeps his hand pretty hidden. So it was very hard to see. I don't remember what he had. I, I just remember having a quick combo with a way to disrupt. I had either a Herx or a Force of Will and was able to just handle it. The list did what it did. It just went fast and he was dead. <laughs> game game two, I kept a seven with library, Hercules Recall, and se uh, several land drops. And I figured, like, I'll I'll play this game. Like he's like he he was going first, so I knew he mulliganed to six already when I kept the seven. And I figured, like, if he jams like a sphere or a chalice or something, I can take my sweet time just drawing cards, making land drops, and then Hercum when I'm ready. And that was my game plan. Uh, that game. Yeah, that game plan went poorly when he had turn one Lodestone Golem. So uh, instead of having forever to figure it out, I had four turns and I did not figure it out. Him sticking Lodestone on turn one pivoted my plan from draw cards with library to let's get this fast man into play. So I played the Mana Vault and then he had turn two Null Rod. And it's just like, 
oh, okay, I'm getting chopped. I understand. Yeah. So that was that. Quick question on game three. Your demonic tutor, was that for no, Academy? No, it was for PO. Yeah. So my opening hand had basic island. I No, it, it was a, it was underground sea. No, no, it, it was island because I used the mocks. Okay. So it was, oh no, it was just three, three artifacts. I remember now. I, I had no lands. I had opal, some off-color mocks, and mana crypt. So I had four mana. One of it was of a useful color. And I had force blue card and top. So I used the opal and the off-color mocks to demonic tutor for PO. I figured I'll, I'll force whatever I'm worried about this turn and then just PO on my turn. And that that's the game. So I demonic tutored for PO. And then with my mana crypt, I played top and activated it. And the top found a Hercules recall on top of my deck. So I stacked that on top just as a, a backup plan. It's a good thing I found that backup plan because Nam had both Chalice on zero and Sphere of Resistance. If I was in a position where I had to force one or the other, I have to force the Chalice and then I'm in a lot of trouble to the Sphere. Uh, if I didn't have the Herx, that would have been a bad time, but I did. So I was able to let both of those cards resolve, just knowing that I could untap, draw the Herx, pass the turn with Hercule. I have four mana, so I can pay the extra one for the Force of Will. And then with my three left, I can Hercules Immense Step. So he would have to have another two permanents I care about. Two more spheres, basically, to, to lock that game up. But I, I felt really well set up. Like I ended up not even casting the Force of Will. The last card in his hand was Walking Ballista for three. Like That resolves, End Step, Herc, and then we just go off from there. Yeah, Nam didn't have much of a clock. That's that's one thing I noticed. He just played out a bunch of resistors and didn't have anything to kill you with, which... I mean, if, you, if you're on the Hercules plan, that doesn't do it. In my testing with Rich, it, it was very clear that exactly one piece of disruption is what Chops wants in this matchup. Like, exactly one sphere or exactly Chalice on zero, and then just puking threats onto the board from there. Yeah, <laughs> that's one way to put it. So you win. They give you this nice painting of a time walk. Are you going to sell it? Are you going to keep it? And they didn't mention it this year. Did they do the thing where they give you like a second one that's just like a repurposed of it? Because a lot of people end up selling it because it's like an original painting. And then they give you like the copy of it. That you yeah, there's like yourself. there's the giant like foam core card, like the kind that you can get at the Grand Prix prize wall. Uh, that is a copy of the painting. Like it has the painting art and says 2018 Vintage Champion, uh, but it's just a piece of cardboard instead of a painting. I did get one of those. Uh, my my friend mentioned earlier uh, in the in the talk, uh, Calvin Hodges, he collects oversized cards. He has like 70 or 80 of them. He's working on a deck. <laughs> I got dinner with him every night that week because he was staying with me. And he mentioned that like uh, he, he would be interested if I end up with that. So uh, after I won, I just like beelined over to his booth and I was like, what's your price on time walk? <laughs> and... and uh, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the price. If, if you want to know, you can ask him. That's his business. But uh, he he bought the big card from me. Those things are, are good enough that I'm able to keep my painting. Like I, I walked away with plenty on the weekend that this painting is hanging on the wall behind me right now as we speak. It's where it will remain. 
interviewing Andy Markiton last year and just imagining just the big painting just sitting behind him, which that's what I'm imagining right now for you. Just, I don't know. It's a very good piece to have in like your, your living space of like, what's that? Oh yeah. I won an original painting. Not many people can say that they won an original painting at a tournament. And I honestly, I'm happy that you, you kept it. It always makes me a little sad when you find out people sold them. Um, Cause it, it's such a unique thing and it's such a fun thing. And, Honestly, for buyers, wouldn't it be a little weird that you have like a picture that says that you're something and then that's not actually you? Yeah, yeah, that that would be a little weird. I also would be uncomfortable reframing it. Like you could take that art out of the vintage champion frame and just like put it on your wall. And now you have this original art that doesn't say you're something you're not. That's something you could do. Uh, I was leading up to the top eight and between each of my matches, I just like stood there in front of the time walk, staring at it. <laughs> like that was my, uh, that was my way to get zoned in eyes on the prize. Literally Psycho. during one of these, uh, rich Shay came over and he was like, isn't it horrible that they put it in this new card frame? This looks so bad. I can't wait to take this out and reframe it. <laughs> and I was like, listen, Nope, it's beautiful. Leave it alone. I, I can't wait to just have this exactly as is for the rest of forever. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I'm not like religious or superstitious, but I do believe in like a general like flow of the universe. And I think if you stand in front of the, the winner's painting and insult it, then you're that's bad you do. And I, I am not, oh, no. not going to participate <laughs> in that conversation. I think it looks wonderful and it's going to stay right where it is. I mean, of all of all players, vintage players have the most right to be superstitious yes. when you have a deck full of one ofs and can just get the fact that the term is get vintaged and probably saying you did it to people all weekend. I don't think you want to insult something that you want to own. So I, I'm going to go yeah. ahead. Agree I think that conversation that. happened before the top four. And I think my uh, the, the time walk oh, no. painting and the vintage gods were smiling upon me, my defense of it when I just went off with uh, no cards left in hand, no mana <laughs> remaining for the tendrils. Uh, so that's pretty much my list of questions here. Uh, is there anyone else that you want to thank or anything else to cap off the weekend? Must have been nice to just toss that painting in the backseat of your car and 10 to 15 minute drive to hang yeah, it up right there on your wall. Yeah, that was kind of surreal because uh, garbage day is Monday morning at my house and I just won Vintage Champs, put this painting in the back of my car, drove home and literally took out the trash. Like I was just snapped right back to real life. <laughs> like I, I got no like six hour drive home to just bask in it or anything. Like it was right back to reality. Like time to take out the trash, go to bed early because I have work in the morning. But I, I did make sure to hang it up that night. It is hanging. Um, I, I have a couple of uh, shameless plugs to plug right now. Um, go for it. I stream. I stream on Twitch. My handle is... Bosch and Roll. That's B O S H underscore the letter N underscore R O L L. Bosch and Roll. Uh, on Twitter, uh, it's the same without the underscores. Just B O S H letter N R O L L at Bosch and Roll. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, follow me. I'm happy to talk to people. The stream is fun. Uh, I generally I've been streaming Popper mostly. I think that format is has the depth of Legacy with none of the BS. Like you get to. You have the same cantrip suite. You have a lot of really in-depth decisions and great games, but you're never just going to get like Charbelchard or Chalice of the Voided or anything. So you want to talk about some like razor thin plays with me playing Popper uh, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern. 
it's going to become an artifact stream. The new uh, Dota card game released by Richard Garfield. Uh, I'm going to be going pretty hard into that game. It looks awesome. They've already announced a million dollar tournament for it. So I want to be there on day one, getting ready for that. Uh, Check out the stream, Bosch and Roll. You want to hang out. On top of that, uh, I had some sponsors for this tournament, Sports Cards, etc. and Titan Games. That's T-A-I-T-A-N Games. Uh, they they hooked me up for this tournament. They took a care of me, and those are both great stores, great people, and help them out if you can. And those are all of my plugs for the weekend. I've already thanked Rich and Alex several times. Like Those guys were, were in my corner. And despite Rich being my potential opponent, he was still in my corner, uh, and that was awesome. And the, those are all of the, the shout-outs I have for, for this weekend. All right. So thank you so much for uh, talking to me for almost two hours and um, have a great rest of your have a great rest of your year as vintage champion. So maybe you can bring it back next year. Be the well, first they are, timer. But one of the prizes this year was to going to the European version, too. So I'm going to have two cracks at it in the next year. Oh, that's yeah. Right. Like randomly, like two or three that. weeks before the tournament, they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, winner goes to Europe. Oh, that's happened. <laughs> have you ever? That's uh, very exciting. Have uh, I have. I studied abroad in England in college. And while I was there, I went over to France for Bazaar of Moxon because it was when I was over there. I judged Grand Prix Brussels. I played in Legacy GP Madrid. So I've been around a little bit over in Europe. I'm really excited to go back. Uh, thanks so much for talking to us and uh, have a great rest Thank of you. your year as Vintage Champion.